You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Australian and international researchers will unpack the ethical challenges posed by healthcare professionals who wish to be able to refuse to treat patients on the grounds of conscientious objections at an upcoming conference. I'm joined by conference organiser Dr Doug McConnell from Charleston University to find out what speakers will explore. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Hi, thanks. Thanks for calling me. How does conscientious objection play out in in the modern Australian context and what are some examples patients or or healthcare workers might come across? Well, in many ways it plays out the same as in other cultures around the world. So we have a, a general problem that arises from the fact that we need a structure in public health care. So we need some laws and some policies to guide how health care is provided. Uh, this you know, allows us to avoid rogue doctors uh, providing clearly bad treatments, um, and it lets patients know what to expect from their health care system. Uh, so you might say, well, you know, we're not going to allow terminations of pregnancies, say, after 24 weeks. Uh, And so that prevents physicians from doing that if we've decided that that is a bad thing to do. And then it also lets patients know what to expect. So it helps the healthcare system be efficient as well. But then, of course, the problem arises that we disagree on exactly what those laws and policies should be. And even though we might agree that we need some laws and policies. So we get this situation where we've settled on some, saying how healthcare is going to be provided, but we inevitably have a subset of people who uh, disagree with exactly where we've set the the policy. So say we've set 24 weeks for when you can terminate a fetus, some people are going to object to the fact they can't terminate fetuses later, and of course some are going to object to the fact that we're terminating um, fetuses at all. So it's essentially a problem that arises from having a a set of laws and policies around how to distribute, uh, provide public health. And in general we have a tension, this is the same across all countries really, a tension between those who are more in favour of a, a thoroughly secular public health care system which could make little, if any, room for objections on religious grounds and those who think that religious viewpoints should be more thoroughly integrated in public health decisions uh, or at least accommodated in some form. So then Australia in particular, I mean, it's hard to actually get a grip on how frequently healthcare professionals are objecting to providing treatments, but we definitely see it coming up with pharmacists refusing to provide emergency contraceptive medication on occasion. Um, and, and we also see doctors refusing to perform terminations of pregnancy. At least um, the, the um, professional bodies for doctors, for pharmacists and for nurses in Australia make provision for conscientious objection. So 
uh, the, the, these professionals have uh, the right to object on conscientious grounds, uh, but uh, the rules are, or the guidelines are that you have to make sure, if you are an objector, you, you have to make sure that the patient receives the therapeutic response that they're supposed to get, so that means referring them to someone who will do it, essentially. And if there is no one there in an emergency situation, you're still supposed to treat. So those, those are the, that's the situation in Australia. Um, and of course, we've got this um, issue with euthanasia coming up. It looks like we're not too far from having uh, policies that are going to allow euthanasia. And um, so that's also uh, an issue where we would expect people to uh, have conscientious objections. Domestic and, and international philosophers and bioethicists are scheduled to speak at the conference next week. Uh, what are some of the, the complexities of conscientious objection presenters will work through? Yes, yeah. so we have this conference which has been generously funded by Charles State University's School of Humanities and Social Sciences and also, fortunately, Macquarie University's Research Centre for Agency Values and Ethics have also contributed, and so what we're what some of the issues we're going to be looking through are ones that I've already alluded to, which is uh, how we might look to accommodate religious conscientious objections, if at all. Uh, we uh, we often uh, a lot of the debate is around if we're going to accommodate conscientious objections, how are we going to limit them? How are we going to limit them in principled ways? And religious conscientious objections, although they're the most frequent kind of conscientious objection, they're also one of the more difficult kind to accommodate in a principled way, or at least to to put limitations on in a principled way. So, uh, for example, uh, if, if I have a conscientious objection based on a particular interpretation of a re religious text, um, and that we say we're going to accommodate that conscientious objection, then that seems that we might accommodate any conscientious objection, because who's to say anyone's interpretation of a religious text is better than anyone else's? So one of the issues we'll look at is um, whether any space can be made for religious conscientious objections, and at least can we accommodate those conscientious objections without opening ourselves up to all kinds of conscientious objections that perhaps we um, wouldn't want to accommodate. So, um, for example, you know, a, a secular conscientious objection might be that. Uh, I might object to providing health care to elderly patients because I think that medical resources should would be better um, spent on younger patients uh, at the moment we don't think that um, we should you know we should divide we should spend our medical resources in that way um, as long as the elderly patients are likely to respond to treatment. Uh, but if we're letting in any kind of conscientious objection, then we would be allowing doctors to to object on those grounds as well. So 
So that so that's one set of issues. Exactly how do we um, so you know, put principled limits on conscientious objection? Um, another another issue is uh, we might be can we do debate uh, when a professional is voicing a real conscientious objection. That's to say, an objection based on a core moral belief. Uh, and when is a conscientious, or when might someone say they've got a conscientious objection, but what they're really doing is just avoiding an uncomfortable situation or uh, rationalising a discriminatory attitude towards patients. Uh, and I mean, there is evidence that, uh, sadly, particularly in, in, in mental health uh, treatment, that patients seeking mental health treatment are discriminated against by a range of healthcare professionals. Um, so we might be worried that you know healthcare professionals are not uh, much or, or more morally exemplary than the average person uh, is anyway. So we should be careful about how much freedom we allow them to potentially act on those those prejudices. So that's a that's another issue that we'll be discussing at the conference. Also related to uh, which conscientious objections we might accommodate, one thing we might ask, one minimal thing we might ask of conscientious objectors is that they exhibit internal consistency in their moral position. I mean, if you have a moral principle, if it genuinely is a moral principle, then you should apply it consistently across situations. If you only apply it in occasional situations, then it seems like it's not it's not really a moral principle you're applying, but it's it's something else to do what suits you when it suits you. Uh, so a true conscientious objection should be uh, applied consistently. And there might be concerns or something that some conscientious objections are not consistent. So um, so an objection so some objections against uh, emergency contraception, for example, because on the basis that it would uh, harm or, or kill zygotic life, would suggest you know, if that is your moral principle that you mustn't harm zygotic life, then or zygotic human life, then uh, you, to be consistent, you should uh, also refrain from helping out with. A number of other things that might harm zygotic life, and that, and these things might be relatively innocuous behaviours. Now, if if um, you're not prepared to uh, apply your principle consistently, then we might uh, reject your alleged principle that you really do worry about harming zygotic life. So, I mean, this would be this would be one way of uh, potentially ruling out certain objections as not being genuine conscientious objections. Um, but then there's another, there, there's a wider issue then of you know, exactly how internally consistent is the average person anyway with their, their moral principles and maybe we shouldn't be holding people to overly rigorous standards of internal consistency. 
you'll be presenting on discretionary space uh, and how wide that should be to, to ensure for the best health care. Uh, we've kind of touched on it a bit so far, but, but to boil it down, what are some of the, the key considerations in, in those decisions? So one issue, or the reason that we might want discretionary space or that physicians or healthcare professionals should have some discretionary space is that because of the complexity of clinical decisions, we can't have a set of rules that would guide every clinical decision. Uh, so we're going to get idiosyncratic situations come up and sometimes it's, you know, it's going to be better uh, to ha- let the clinician make a judgment based on what they see in front of them rather than trying to imagine a set of rules that would be able to guide their decision in all these um, in all these cases. You just can't imagine what's going to come up. So we can agree that some discretionary space is uh, important for uh, good medicine. Uh, and as I've mentioned, we, we would want to still limit discretionary space in some ways. So, you know, if we think that um, fiduciary duty is an important aspect of um, good medicine, then we should think that there should be some rules that ensure that professionals uh, follow that or fulfil that duty to their patients. Now, so so in this, uh, in what I present, I argue for the idea that discretionary space should be relatively narrow. Uh, and limited by um, rules that are appropriate for the profession, so kind of professional policies. And I argue against uh, a guy, Daniel Sulmasi, who argues for a wider discretionary space limited only by ideas of um, religious tolerance. So he thinks things, you know, we should allow physician space to practice medicine in ways that won't be destructive to society. And I think that's overly generous and it will result in, um, it will tend to result in in worse medicine than if we uh, go for my narrower discretionary space. So that, that's what I'll be talking about. How does conscientious objection factor into that conversation? Well, yeah, so it's in some sense a background issue which will then um, affect what we think about conscientious objection. So at the moment, Daniel Sumasi, for example, thinks that discretionary space is too narrow, that physicians are being overly limited in, in their judgments, and so he is, as a result, in favour of conscientious objections because those physicians would want to object in the situations where their judgments were being uh, excessively limited in their view. Uh, Interestingly, if he got his way and we had a wider discretionary space um, in the the way he envisages it, I assume, although I'm not sure, that he would be less in favour of conscientious objection then because physicians would already be able to act on their judgments as they saw fit. Um, and on his view, any conscientious objection to the very weak limits he places on discretionary space would entail that the physician was 
acting in ways that were destructive to society or ultimately undermining religious tolerance. So, um, so if he got his way, then perhaps he wouldn't be in favour of conscientious objection anymore, or at least he'd be in favour of um, much fewer cases of conscientious objection. What do you hope uh, conference attendees walk away with? Well, at the very least, uh, they'll walk away with an up-to-date understanding of the current state of several debates uh, that are currently in progress around conscientious objection in healthcare. Uh, hopefully we can do better than that. Hopefully we can advance the debate between, particularly between those who are relatively anti-conscientious objection and those who are more favourable to it, or between those who favour a more thoroughly secular public health care system and those who uh, are more generous towards uh, alternative views such as religious worldviews. Uh, I don't know whether we'll, one side will convince the other, but hopefully each side will give the other something new to think about. Thank you for your time, Doug. Cool. Thanks very much.